from New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. My next two books are Words on the Move from Holt and Talking Back, Talking Black from Bellevue Literary Press. And you can catch things I write on language and other things at CNN, The Atlantic, and whoever will have me at any given time. I'm honored to be guest hosting Lexicon Valley for the summer, and my topic this week is disorder, which is not my favorite thing, especially when it comes to language, where my bias is system, process, language acting like a machine. Of course, all languages leak, as the great linguist anthropologist Edward Sapir told us, and part of truly embracing language is to understand that there will always be things like the fact that you say, aren't I finished, rather than amn't I finished, even though you would never say I are. But overall, what many linguists do is describe language as rules, like lines of computer code. In that light, there are things about language that seem unruly, and the truth is there's a kind of linguist who devotes themselves, yes, themselves, not himself or herself, and I hereby own it, themselves to studying the disorder, or better, and this is what I really cotton to about this work, showing that there's underlying order in what looks like disorder. Science is or should be all about telling us things we didn't know, showing us the counterintuitive. And that's the kind of thing one gets from the work of my guest today, Sally Taliamonte, who researches and teaches at the University of Toronto. Her latest book takes us on a tour of the past and present of the kind of linguistics that takes on the, the mess, the disorder. The book is Making Waves, the story of... Uh, well, then it names what this school of thought is, and you may have gleaned that I've been holding back on a term to refer to this kind of work. Here it goes. Our topic today is variationist sociolinguistics, and my friend Solly's book is titled Making Waves, the story of variationist sociolinguistics. That, however, is not a medical condition, but a source of answers to many of the very questions that people often have about language. So, for example, in the 30s and 40s, one of America's hottest movie stars was Alice Faye. She was a wonderful singer who, as often happened back then, was featured in a long string of movie musicals. Now, Faye grew up working class in New York City in Hell's Kitchen and the old Hell's Kitchen, not today's gentrified Hell's Kitchen. And as such, often she didn't pronounce the R at the end of a syllable. So, before could be before. An apartment could be apartment, and so on. Now, a favorite writer of mine on these kinds of movies, Ethan Morden, asked long ago, why can't Alice Faye pronounce her R's? Well, why couldn't she? Here's a clip from one of her movies, Wake Up and Live, in which we can hear what Morden and I am referring to. Listen for how she says before, apartment, there, and record. You can have him, too. Well, when can you bring him in? I can't bring him in. What do you mean? As I've told you before, the Phantom will not broadcast from the studio. There's only one way he'll broadcast, from my apartment by remote control. You can pick him up there in Mr. Bernie's office to accompany him from the High Hat Club. And the price will be, shall we say, $1,000 a broadcast? Should we say 500 Shall we say 750 We shall say 750 Fine. But that is an all. Where he broadcasts from must be kept a secret. I want your word of honor on that. And don't try to find out who he is or you'll spoil everything. But when can we have him in person? Well, how much time can you give me? How about next Wednesday night when I open at the Vanilla Club? He'll be there. 
Just a minute, Miss uh, Hunter. What guarantee are you going to give us? You won't have to pay for his broadcast until he appears in person. Well, okay, that's the deal. Send a man to my apartment to hook up a microphone. But remember, it must be kept a secret or the deal is off. I'll be back in an hour to sign the contract. And as a further guarantee of my good faith, you can keep the record. Now, notice that she doesn't never pronounce those R's, just not always. She says remember and further, not remember and further. But variably, she has what linguists call a good R-less pronunciation. So, Sally, people such as you, variationist sociolinguists, study this sort of thing. You find something interesting about it. What would you say the value is in studying how language varies instead of how it does what we think it does, which is be the same way all the time like a computer code? Language reflects human beings, not just individuals, but language reflects societies and language reflects communities. And so when you study language, you're actually getting very close at understanding what is going on with human beings in the groups that they form, in the cities, in the communities, without them having to, you know, intellectualize about it and tell you. So you can get a very clear picture of the kinds of tensions there may or may not be between old and young, male and female. Any of the contrasts in a human population can be studied by looking at how they use language. But the problem is, from the point of view of many people, that a lot of these people, when they're using language and all of these things we're calling communities, it sounds like they're making mistakes. And so why are we studying these mistakes that they're making as if it's some sort of biological trait or as if it's quote-unquote interesting? So Alice Fay is leaving off her R's from words where it's supposed to have an R. Many people would say, how is that science? Now, Sally, of course, you understand that I am not one of those people. But to give people a sense of why someone would study that, why is that human? It's one of the hardest things that language scientists have to explain to other people. And that is that language is not about right or wrong. We are studying language as a system. Now, what makes a pronunciation or a word or anything that we might use in language, right or wrong, has nothing to do with the linguistic system. What it has to do with are the social perceptions people have. So, for example, in some places, pronouncing apartment as apartment without the R is going to be considered low-class, uneducated, and bad. But in other places, it's considered very posh. So the judgment we make about whether the pronunciation is right or wrong really comes down to how we were brought up, what our community says is right or wrong, Mm -hmm. and that has not got anything to do with the value, the intrinsic value of the pronunciation or not. And suppose you have a group in your community that are less privileged or less educated or go snowboarding instead of playing the violin, you know, whatever it happens to be. If those people pronounce no R's, you're going to think while somebody who doesn't pronounce their R's is part of that group. Mm -hmm. British dialects, for example, R-lessness is considered very fine. Mm -hmm. The Downton Abbey people sound great. Exactly. And if you pronounce your R, you're probably downstairs and you're kind of crude and you're Mrs. Hughes. Exactly. And it's not just sounds, you know, it's the words we use. I'm up here in Toronto, and if we want to go down to the 
lavatory down the hall, we say washroom. <laughs> I, I know. can hardly even say bathroom <laughs> because it's so crass to me, but that's because that's the way I was brought up and that's the words we use here in Canada. So the words we use too are often construed to be bad or good when really what those words and the choices of those words are has to do with what is socially appropriate in the community we live in. Yeah, these things are perfectly arbitrary. I must admit that when I'm in Canada, washroom always sounds like something in a dollhouse. It sounds very precious, and that's simply because I grew up with bathroom. You know, there's a certain kind of person who listens to people talking, and they're really concerned with consistency. And it kind of brings us back to, of all people, Alice Faye. The person will say, well, I don't care exactly how you say it, but just do the same thing every time. People should be consistent. We've all heard that person. Now, with Alice Faye, let's say that some Martian listens to the way she talks and works out how English works. They don't know that apartment is low class and apartment is high class, which is absolutely ridiculous. But they will hear that she says apartment, but then she says remember, or that she will say something like before. But then she'll say further, there's a lack of consistency in there. Why is that? How come she doesn't do the same thing every time? Because linguists like you have these elaborate statistical programs that you use. In my day, it was VARB rule. I am finding that that seems to have changed. But there are programs that you use where there are these beautiful figures that show the rates at which people do this as opposed to that. Why is it that Alice Faye is inconsistent in that way? Sometimes apartment, but sometimes apartment. What's what's going on there? There's a hidden code. Let's call it a hidden code. There's a hidden organization to language that you cannot learn, you cannot know just by listening. Mm-hmm. You can only find the pattern, the consistency, the the system in this alternation between different pronunciations or words or whatever, arlessness versus not arless. If you become a scientist and you actually go in there and you look more carefully at exactly where the R's are appearing and when they're not appearing, whenever a choice exists between one thing or another thing, Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about language or stock markets or the weeds in a farm. You can use statistics to help you understand the hidden intricacy mm-hmm. in those patterns. Mm-hmm. And so when you actually approach these alternations in language from that perspective, what you find is that there is a hidden regularity to it. She doesn't pronounce her R's. But in certain positions mm-hmm. in the word, she's more likely Depending to Depending on what sounds are after or before. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And in certain types of nouns, she might pronounce it or not pronounce it. I can mm-hmm. remember when I first moved to England, and I moved to the small city of York, and one of the first words I learned to pronounce in the appropriate way because, of course, no one could understand me if I didn't do it that <laughs> way, was to say, York Minster. Hmm. You know, York Minster Cathedral is a beautiful cathedral, but if if you don't say York Minster, 
Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what you're talking about. So you have to pronounce it that way. And you know, what's fun about these things is how much of it is subconscious. It's also frustrating because exactly. it can make it hard to talk about because we don't think about these things. But one of the classic studies was by Penny Eckert, who yes. is at Stanford, and she did her classic study of the jocks and the burnouts exactly. in Michigan in a high school. And one of the things that was interesting was that she showed that people who were you know maybe less ambitious, had a more local orientation, were not oriented towards getting away from the vernacular world of urban Detroit, were more likely to have Detroit vowels in a very subtle way, especially when they talked about things related to Detroit. And so you would have a subtle difference like saying jab instead of job, which is one way that you can tell somebody from that area. And by the way, I'm not really talking about black Detroit. This is actually white Detroit. In fact, a lot of people took from this kind of work that you're forging a kind of identity through your speech Even if you don't know it, I always wondered, though, are people expressing an identity and saying they're going to get a job rather than a job? Or is it too subconscious for us to call it identity? Well, John, I think it's a continuum. We can make a choice about using a word or not using a word. So if I'm in England, I can say lorry, not truck. But so much of what's in language is entirely subconscious. I don't make a choice to say use a relative clause construction that is particular. Hmm. I don't, in the course of conversation, decide to put on an L-Y on an adverb or not. Much of what we do is because of what we've learned or what we mirror from the associations with people around us. So if it's identity, it's on a very deep level and not one that we're wielding consciously. Absolutely. It's on a very deep level. I mean, Canadians who moved to the United States for work, like my stepson, he has gradually shifted his vowels incrementally so that he sounds more American. Subconsciously. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't know he's doing it. But of course, if you want to be part of some group of people, you will subconsciously start aligning yourself more and more with them linguistically. And you know what's interesting about these subconscious things is that There's also a gender aspect in that, and the media makes much of this often, although it often leaves as many questions as answers, that women are more likely to do new things along these lines. And so to the extent that language is always changing, language is like cloud patterns. You don't expect it to be the same tomorrow as the way it was before. The ways that it's changing, the, the beginnings of the new cloud pattern, so to speak, tend to be something that women are doing. And so today, what gets a lot of attention is the vocal fry to go like this. And apparently that is something, although it's at the point where it is spreading across the genders, and some people argue that it never really was something that was primarily associated with women. But there seems to be some evidence that it was that women are the ones who started doing this and that then men are following. And what's important is that nobody decides to go like this at the end of a sentence. It's just the way a modern human being below a certain age sounds and nobody thought about it until certain linguists started calling attention to it. But why do you think it is that it would so often, and we see this again and again in the studies, be women who do something new while the guys just keep talking the way everybody's always been talking? Why women? Well, you know, there are a lot of theories about that. We know from, you know, many studies in variation of sociolinguistics that 95% of the time, 
women lead linguistic change. Isn't that interesting? And it's not just in the modern world. You know, we have studies from Tudor and Stuart England, and we have studies from old Babylonia, and we have studies from I didn't know about Greece. Babylonia. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Wherever we go, wherever we can look at the contrast between men and women and language change and language developments, we find women lead linguistic change. So... Part of it's biological, women's innate linguistic what? ability. You know, like women are chatty. They use language all the time. There's a sort of a gender bias there. Sally, some, if I said that, you you would tell me I was stereotyping, wouldn't you? Well, I'm chatty women. telling you, I'm not saying this is what I believe. I'm saying this is what people have put forward. Like, why okay. do women lead linguistic change? Well, you know, maybe it's there's an inherent bias there. Right. A lot of people have said, no, it's cultural because it's about the women and their role in society. Well, that's what yeah, I was taught. Yeah, that's true. But then, how come it operated in old Babylonia? How come it operated right. in ancient Greece? Yeah. So it's got to be more than just cultural. Then there's this idea of covert prestige, and mm-hmm. that women want to be using the prestigious forms, and men do not want to be using the prestigious forms. So as soon as women start using a particular feature men retreat from it and don't do it. So there we have it. Women lead linguistic change most of the time. You know, it's interesting in looking at it because it is so confounding in many ways and it seems to stretch across so many different contexts both in time and space. I've often thought that in a way we might be framing the question wrong. It isn't why do women lead, it's why do the men resist? And so it seems like For the women, they're allowing the clouds to do what they do, but there's something weird about the guys. Like what you're saying is that maybe the the men are resisting sounding like women. But it's fascinating that even, you know, something like the difference between goeth and goes, the change from that th ending that we associate with Shakespeare and difficulty and quaintness and our nice s today. All the evidence is that women led that. You know, Elizabeth I was one of the real frontliners in that change. Yeah. And yet, why women? And Sally, have you ever noticed this? This is something that I just know anecdotally at this point. I'm thinking about writing this up. You ask somebody how their day is and they say, good. Or somebody will say, no. Or you've got plenty of room. I've been listening to female people under about 25 doing that uh when feeling emotional in some way, such as saying that something is really nice or being slightly upset. And you see it on TV. I've seen stage actresses do it. Of course, my students doing it. And it seems like it's this new kind of interjective morphine that's arising. I have never heard a guy do it, or I should say, and this this is something that actually I'm sure would be interesting if somebody wanted to study this. The men who I've heard doing this good, wonderful, uh, are ones who I know are gay. So there's huh? something about oh, women because now people are studying what gay, especially gay male speech might be. And I was wondering if you, had you heard this uh that I've I been hearing. I haven't observed that, but again, I'm up here in Toronto. It might be just American. You know, I'm going to listen out for it, but it just is testimony to the fact that the movers and shakers are adolescents and, and youth, and we should yep. be listening to what they're doing because they are the ones that are on the front lines of change. Or change. There is something else that is in your book, Making Waves, that introduces basically the lay public to what variation of sociolinguistics is. And there has needed to be a book like this for a long time. 
It discusses some things about Black English, and I know that for academics, the preferred term is African American vernacular English. To be honest, I never got on that bandwagon, and Black English is shorter, so I'm going to call it that rather than "av," which I know the pros often call it. But generally, back in the day, the idea was that "av" or Black English traced to either Africa or to Creole languages like Jamaican patois. In other words, it had a black background. But there is a school of sociolinguists, and I would say that you have been part of it, who have argued that black English actually has white roots. And I've seen controversy over this. I've seen some people at conferences, you know, quite unhappy about this. What is that all about? How in the world, Sally, can you say that black English is a white thing rather than a black thing? Well, let me just say, I'm not saying it's all or nothing. <laughs> I know. But, you know, when we hear black English, I'll use the term that you're using, most people hear something that's not beautiful, not right. the way to say things. And, of course, they immediately consider that the phenomena that they're hearing, whether it's arlessness or certain words or certain constructions, is something that has come from speaking a bad kind of English. Mm-hmm. When what is often the case is that those features, those sounds, those constructions actually come from a dialect of English. It's just that in North America, we've never been exposed to rural and northern dialects Especially in today. the UK. And so when I moved to England in 1995, and I started hearing all these features there, you know, wow. And in my own work in the 90s, what I did was I studied features of people who had African-American ancestry, Mm -hmm. and I discovered that many of the features they used could be traced back to the indentured laborers who Mm -hmm. worked in the plantations alongside those people. So if they learned English, where did they learn it from? Maybe they learned it from those indentured Irishmen who were working alongside. And lo and behold, many of those same features are in Northern Irish, Northern Scottish dialect. It's the funniest thing to see what that Irish speech is, which we rarely have occasion to hear, as you say, in North America. And to notice that, you know, so many things that we think of as straight up black English that we cannot imagine coming out of a non-brown person's mouth are really something that these very white people across the ocean use. But the money point used to be among people who resisted these findings and what they implied was that if you leave out the verb to be and you say, she, my sister something like that, that that was undeniably a black English trait, that there's nobody white who would say, you know, they over there or something like that. So that seemed to be something that had some people tried to trace it to Africa. That didn't work. There certainly seemed to be some sort of relationship with Creoles like Jamaican Patois or Gullah from South Carolina. And I was one of those people. I always said, well, yeah, this, you know, frankly, I agree with a great deal of this white origins hypothesis and some people don't like me for it. But I always said you have to temper it with the fact that there are these constructions where you are simply not going to find anybody doing it who isn't black. There are some things that black people can hold to their bosom about this. And yet even even that apparently doesn't work because you have turned up some white people who would say, she my sister. Is that true? I have done some work on that myself in northern uh, 
British dialects, but I, from what I hear from my colleagues in Ireland, you get it over there, too. I just can't believe it. You have recordings of these people producing these utterances, I gather. I do. Not with you right now, but you know that, no, this, that this actually it, exists. You know, until you're in northern Britain, where you have many different dialects, you kind of live in this myopic universe in North America, and you think that anything you hear that's not standard English spoken by someone with a brown face or a yellow face or some face that's not washed, you think that that must have come from some, I don't know, didn't come from England anyway. <laughs> it's but just what assumed. you find is that, you know, there are many dialects in the UK where you get exactly the kinds of constructions. So not every construction in Black English has its roots in Ireland, but many of those constructions do. And I mean, some people think that a lot of the really interesting constructions in Black English didn't come from the past. It came from the development of new features across the 20th century. So yeah. these are interesting phenomena because, of course, the minute you get a culture that is very strong with a, lot, a strong sense of self-identity, you're going to get the development of specific linguistic features that are going to set that community or that group of people off from others. And that's just part of human nature. We we want to sound like where we belong. Mm -hmm. We want to sound like where we come from. Yeah, and also language is always changing, and that is true of all human beings under all circumstances. It's always like the clouds. And that means that black English of 150 years ago was quite different from what we know today. And I urge anybody interested to listen. Now it's available online to ex-slave recordings. You can listen to somebody who grew up under slavery speaking, and they do not sound anything like Jamie Foxx. It's, it's very interesting. All language evolves. But Sally, as we come to the close, I want to ask you something about sociolinguistics, which has always concerned me. It's a, it reminds me of being at the Linguistic Society of America conference back in 1992. But that was a fun one for me in many ways. And I had a conversation with a leading sociolinguist where basically she – I was having some doubts about my career plans. And she told me at one point, very much in passing, well, if what you're doing is telling people that the way they talk is OK, then you should not let anybody make you think that that is invaluable. And the truth is that was not why I was doing the kind of work I was doing. It wasn't me teaching people that the way they talk is okay. I've done a certain amount of that since, especially when I try to communicate about linguistics for the public, but that wasn't why I was studying Creole languages as a lad in 92. And since then, it's occurred to me, hmm, there is a social mission behind a lot of variationist sociolinguistics, such that in your book, Bob Bailey actually says, I don't know of any other field that combines the kind of academic rigor and real concern for social justice that we see in the kind of work we do. He lays it right out there. Is that what variationist sociolinguistics is for you, or is it something to just nerd out on? Where do you fall on that? Well, John, I've spoken to a lot of people who do this kind of work, and one of the all most, of them, yeah, yeah, I've spoken to pretty much all of. One of the interesting things that came out of that was when you scratch a sociolinguist, what you find is someone who really cares about what they do, hmm. and they think they can make some kind of difference because there are perceptions about language that hold people back in the world, and. Sociolinguistics, from a variationist perspective, one of its underlying missions is to demonstrate and prove that every voice, every 
variety, every dialect has its value. Mm-hmm. Every single person I talked to said, what I do matters. It matters to people. Right. And that means that we can listen to an Alice Faye and realize that she actually has, in many ways, a more extensive speech repertoire than somebody who speaks more standardly all the time. She's not making mistakes. She is working with a toolkit. Sally, thank you for giving us this introduction to what a whole world of linguists do that in some ways I feel like we don't hear enough from. There has needed to be a book about variation as sociolinguistics that a non-academic could read. And Making Waves is finally that book. And I'm glad that I was able to talk with you about some of the themes that I found in it. Sally, I will see you at the Linguistic Society of America conference in January. Okay. Thanks, John. Tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Mike Wolo. I'm John McWhorter. Thank you so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. Music